Hello and welcome to Seabird. I'm John Herlig. Just a quick reminder before we dig in that if you like the show, there's really nothing better you can do than to simply share an episode with a friend. Every single share makes a measurable difference in our ability to keep the show rolling and to keep these fascinating stories coming your way. So thanks for the love and stick with us. We have barely scratched the surface of season one. Seabird is sponsored by The Boat Galley and TheBoatGalley.com. If you are dreaming about learning how to live on a boat, or if you have a boat and you're dreaming about untying those dock lines and drifting away, TheBoatGalley.com is the place to start your journey. Boat better with TheBoatGalley.com. Our guest this week is Megan Agresto. Megan is the lighthouse keeper of the Currituck Beach Lighthouse in Corolla, North Carolina. Her roots are deep in this tiny coastal town where she has raised two boys, has started a one-room schoolhouse, and has grown the business that is the lighthouse itself. In the off-season, her curiosity gets the better of her, and she spends her time digging ever deeper into the rich tapestry that is the history of the lighthouse and the families that have called it home. Cue the band. Let's do this. This is Seabird. Stories from remarkable people. Hi, I'm Megan Agresto. I'm a lighthouse keeper at the Currituck Beach Lighthouse in Corolla, North Carolina. I've been here for 16 years with Luis Garcia, who also works here at our lighthouse as a keeper, and our two kids who are here in 2021, 14 and 16 years old. So officially, my business card says site manager. That's boring. And Luis's business card says lighthouse keeper. But also other people, like people in the Bahamas, might say, no, no, those two are caretakers because they don't carry oil to the top. So you can argue it any which way. But lots of people in town call me and him lighthouse keepers. I'm a gesticulator, but I can sit on my hands and we'll see how it works. Megan Agresto, welcome to Seabird. I have so many questions for you about being a lighthouse keeper and or lighthouse project administrator or whatever you might be. (laughs) But first, could you just take a minute and tell us about the lighthouse? Great. We'll start with some fast facts. The lighthouse was first illumined. That's the, the verb they use, was first illumined in 1875. Illumined, okay. It's 220 steps to the outdoor gallery It's 162 feet to the top of the building. But the most important thing in a lighthouse is from what height above sea level does it shine? And in our case, it's 158 feet is its focal plane. That's why you see short lighthouses on on top of cliffs, but tall lighthouses on flat, sandy strips of sand, of land. As the Outer Banks would be very much. Exactly. We had oil-carrying lighthouse keepers from 1875 to 1933. Then they kept two of those three lighthouse keepers on until 1937 when they automated the lighthouse. And there was a series of changes from after that when the state of North Carolina takes over the grounds, the Coast Guard takes over the beacon. Eventually, the nonprofit I work for leased the tower and now actually owns the tower but the Coast Guard continues to operate uh, and ensure the the beacon is a public aid to navigation. Did the lighthouse first burn lard? Lard, indeed. 1875, I think, to 1884. Not a lot of uh, animals grazing on the Outer Banks. What, I guess they had to bring in the lard. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything gets shipped in, right? Everything comes in on a barge and you have to account for all of it. The Outer Banks is a pretty tough place to get a barge in. So a, a long, thin strip of land right in between the mainland and the ocean. Um, I suppose technically at least the northern part of it is a peninsula. Um, it does attach to Virginia, right? Correct. 
Okay. But by the time they build this lighthouse, they've already got a lot of the intracoastal waterway through canals. Um, so first the Dismal Swamp and then the Albemarle and Chesapeake mm-hmm. Canal. So that accounts for a much easier... They would not have been able to build this lighthouse if they had to launch everything on the ocean side. So they had canals already working inland which allowed them to get the barges with supplies down to build the lighthouse. Do you know how long it took for them to build it? How, when did they start? Yeah, so 1873, Congress appropriates money, and people start looking for the tract of land to buy between the Cape Henry Lighthouse uh, in Virginia and the Body Island Lighthouse south of here. There was 40 miles of dark space there. They looked for, within those 40 miles of dark space, some piece of property smack in the middle, right? They purchased that. 1874, they start driving piles for the foundation. And by December 1st, 1875, the light shines for the first time. Wow. Okay. But the podcast is about you, not about the lighthouse, but the lighthouse facts are a part of your life and a part of what makes this so interesting. So there's a lot of them that are coming in because it fascinates me that this that this is what you do and, and the path that you took to get there fascinates me as well. So they started out burning lard and switched, I assume, but I don't know, to kerosene before it was finally Correct. electrified. Correct. And so they changed lanterns. Okay. Right, not lanterns at that time. They changed lamps okay. throughout that time a variety of times. But the entire time, the lighthouse had that first order Fresnel lens, correct? Correct. And during that time, though, we have a... And I can talk about the lighthouse all day long, and I love to, honestly. So I don't mind you asking me a million questions, because there are so many different ways to get information out in writing, in videos. And I don't want it all to be in my head, (laughs) right? So I try to take the winter times to write some blogs and make videos. But once we open to the public, I really don't have the... That's it. That's right. It becomes much harder. So I'm happy for you to talk about the lighthouse all day. But the lens itself Mm -hmm. was a fixed rotating lens. It was very much like the one at St. Augustine Lighthouse in Florida, which is actually Mm -hmm. an architectural twin to this tower. Mm -hmm. But that means... A big portion of the lens never moves. There's a light burning inside it, and rotating around those prisms is a bullseye shape of prisms with ruby red glass door, they called it, affixed in front of it. So if you were out at sea, not moving, you would have seen 85 seconds of white light and then a five-second flash rotating around the lens. It took about two and a half minutes for a full rotation because it was 85 seconds of white, five seconds of red, Wow! three times. And the keeper would have to crank that. Do most lighthouses have a lighthouse keeper or is that increasingly rare? It does seem to be that an on-site keeper is less usual. Uh, in this day and age. A lot of lighthouses, it feels like, are owned by parks or states or counties, right? After the National Lighthouse uh, Preservation Act of 2000, the Coast Guard, through the GSA, tried to declare a lot of properties as excess properties. Oh, so boring. I'm sorry. I just got too boring on us. Let's try that again. (laughs) It's okay. I thought about trying to buy one. Oh, don't, John. Before you buy a lighthouse, it can it's so expensive, right? Don't worry. I mean, particularly if you have iron yeah. near salt. You just have to have an income for that lighthouse to support the lighthouse. It's okay. I didn't buy one. Yeah, that was smart. Thank you. Because unless someone wants to give it to you, and then you know it's going to get visitation money, yeah. or you can get it to have national criteria on the National Register of Historic Places, and you can write big grants. Those are the ways you want to make sure you acquire a lighthouse. Metal and salt air don't like each other. So how often did the lighthouse keeper have to wind the mechanism? Anywhere between two and two and a half hours, depending what keeper was describing his job. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Do... (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm sorry. Do ghost chasers ever come to the lighthouse grounds to seek supernatural spirits, either in the lighthouse or in the lighthouse keeper's residence? So for a while, I was indulgent. That's a yes. 
And okay, that was so past tense. Yes, present tense. No. The point here is not to speak ill of those who seek out the supernatural. But anyway, keep going. There, this is a sort of a two-faceted thing. If somebody could tell me the facts of life about ghost presence, I would be more compelled to help. If you said, Megan, here are why there would be ghosts continuing to this day to be on your site, because all shipwreck victims that couldn't be sent home are never allowed to move anywhere else, and so they're just hanging out. Or mm -hmm. heartbreak means you can't go to heaven. Or whatever the rule is, if someone could tell me the rule, okay. I would abide by it because I'm a rule follower. <laughs> but in the meantime, I work for a nonprofit whose mission includes education. And, and in this case, the, heart, the true heartbreak of this site is that there were mm -hmm. dead everywhere right? Prior even to the lighthouse being built, but even afterwards. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in if I may. When you say that, I interpret it that what you're saying is, of course, there were, death was a part of life on the grounds of the lighthouse, shipwrecks coming in, people who lived there to support the operation who would grow old and die or die perhaps tragically. Or whose kids would drown. Yeah. So that's what you're saying, right? Is that there was in fact death. I mean, it's death surrounds everything. Yes, and and the true stories are for me so much more compelling, and s tell a story of how we are temporary beings here on site. What is the point of knowing history if it doesn't contextualize in some part of our planet's history? And knowing the true stories of the Italian who was a first-time captain of the Nuova Ottavia, who makes it sixty days across the sea and dies 800 feet from land with his 13 year old son and the the guy building the lighthouse keeper's house who goes out in place of one of the surfmen and is dead an hour later right a heroic human i don't need to us to talk about their ghosts i need to talk about who they were and where they came from and this guy was from baltimore and this guy you know who were they and who were the people left behind them before the the life-saving service had uh, money for the widows, right? There are so many real life tragedies. The truth is so much more compelling. And that's what I spend all my winters doing is trying to find these people either through newspaper articles or ancestry documents to tie them together to tell a story. I am ready to go to Genoa these days to see where this one shipwreck that I'm totally fascinated right now to see where the the bark itself was built and see if there are great, great grandchildren of the captain. Do you know the details? That yes. Surround that particular vessels. Give me the, the literally the 15 second version. Uh, it, the lighthouse had just been built. The, the Italians don't have our lighthouse on their, on their list yet, on their maps, on their charts. Oh. And so he thinks he's at Cape Henry. In a big storm, they made it all the way across. Great, clear sailing. Massive storm right off the coast. They see a light shining through the storm. He looks at his map. He's quite sure he's near here. So he's got to assume it's Cape Henry, which also had a red light. Now, Cape Henry wasn't flashing and we were, but in the middle of a storm, when you're about to hit shoals, you're not paying attention. He decides to essentially overland Wow! because he thinks we're the Chesapeake Bay and <laughs> oh. that's it. There are actually four survivors from that wreck and then they have to get on another boat to get back to New York to get home. Anyway, horrible. But for me, always more interesting than whether or not there are some rules about whether spirits are somehow locked or lost, which would be tragic if that were the case. Right? Some people go to heaven. Some people are go to hell. Some people are ghosts. I won't chime in on that. Ah, um, too much. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, it's switching it up? Is there has there historically been a written ledger or log, whatever it might be called, that belongs to the lighthouse? If so, how far back do you have them? Have you seen them all? And were there any surprises in there if these exist? So remember that the United States Lighthouse Bureau, the Lighthouse Board actually initially, is in charge of this site. And when you work for the feds, 
1875, you better account for everything. So there's some, although a lot of those uh, archives burned, there's write-ups and monthly reports about the building of the tower. And then there's daily journals that the keepers had to keep, which were actually separate from their uh, nighttime log of how many barks and how many vessels and how many brigantines they saw. So there are indeed, and the National Archives in Washington, D.C., has the journals for the keepers from the station. Wow. And they and go all the way through 1937. I'll assume you've been up to see them, perhaps not in their entirety. So many times. So many times. And I know they're, I write to them all the time, and because of COVID, they're all working from home. And I just keep writing to them to be like, I know you can't find this for me, but if I write you an email, I'll remember it when I get to come up next. Yes. We got to get this COVID behind us so you can spend your off season getting up and getting busy on uh, on research. That's right. I I doubt you need any convincing. Um any any surprises that you found leafing through those old records or is it just the monotony of of running a lighthouse in the middle of nowhere in the in the late 19th century? So many surprises, so much humans, John, remember humans are full of drama and fascination and you know it's interesting because initially so 1875 to about 1880 there are three keepers here living on site principal keeper gets to live by himself with his family if he has one and the two assistants have to share space and that can be very complicating especially so you have a principal keeper a first principal keeper uh, excuse me a first assistant keeper i'm gonna start that sentence again so you have a principal keeper, a first assistant, and a second assistant. And of course, if the first assistant leaves, you, the second assistant, would assume you're going to get promoted to that space. And if you don't, Uh-oh. and somebody gets in your stead, <laughs> you then have to live with them. Oh, my Lord. Yes. And so there's, and because it's the federal government, every letter gets saved. And there is a lot of who let the light go out, which happens at every lighthouse, right? You're going to get fired. (laughs) Fingers are going to get pointed. Someone's going to lose a job, right? You can't let the light go out. And if you slept through your shift, you're going to lose your job. But in our case... I would think that's got to be one of the most important things. That's right. It is the most important thing. But in our case, somebody gets fired. Ah. So there's this incredible wreck, the metropolis, and we... Our keepers here at the at the Kurtugby's Lighthouse house 60 some odd survivors. Can you imagine? They've just survived and there's a hundred plus dead and they're all sleeping in your house. And then the next morning, 72 hmm. are here for breakfast, right? That same keeper, Burris, eventually gets fired. This job, even though it's not an incredibly high paying job, is remember one of the only jobs on the Outer Banks that's salaried, sure. right? It's year-round. It's stable. If you want to be a surfman initially, you're only working a few months a year. If you had been a farmer, Civil War might have changed your your scenario in life here in the South quite a bit in terms of the way you make income. So mm-hmm. lighthouse keeping is a great job, and you want to keep your job and point fingers at the other guy if someone got fired for light going Lord, out. Lord, it sounds cutthroat. Oh, it's cutthroat. At one point, soon after the Civil War, one guy is speculating about whether another keeper is A, brain damaged, and B, whether he's a Republican or a Democrat. (laughs) You know, because right after the Civil War, if you work for the U.S. government, you better be a Republican. And so, I mean, these are letters back and forth. Oh, and maybe maybe you or maybe your wife poisoned our dog. So funny enough, Five years later, they hire three bachelors. <laughs> <laughs> did that Did that improve then things? The house, well, we had had 24 people living in our keeper's mm-hmm. house. And then soon after that, we have three, three bachelors. No, then one gets fired for going dancing, you know, when he should have been here. Oh, <laughs> it's hard, John. Humans at the end of the earth. Oh, humans at the end of the earth. You summed it up well. Oh, hold on. I have an alarm going off. It's okay. Oh, no. Oh, this is bad. Oh, it says put the chickens in. Hold on. Did you say put the chickens in? I, yes, I let the chickens out. <laughs> you know, I'm. do I think the chickens are going to have cooped themselves up? Is there something you need to do? We just can't let me forget. <laughs>
soon to go put those chickens in or the coyote will eat them. Why don't we pause and you go take care of the chickens? Okay, I'll be right back. Uh, we're talking today with Megan Agresto, the lighthouse keeper of the Currituck Beach Lighthouse in Corolla, North Carolina. We're going to come back and stop talking about lighthouses and talk about Megan. So bear with me and we'll be right back. Whether it's learning the right way to tie off to a mooring ball or mastering how to eat well, even though you have a just stupidly, ridiculously tiny refrigerator on your boat, theboatgalley.com is where you need to go to learn how to make life on a boat better, easier, more successful, and more comfortable. It makes no difference if you've lived aboard for 10 years or if boating is just a dream for you. Carolyn at The Boat Galley has answers to everything you need to know to learn how to live on a boat or to simply learn how to boat better. What you need to do is this. You need to sign up for her newsletter. I have been on that list since 2013. Go to theboatgalley.com, G-A-L-L-E-Y, theboatgalley.com. Click on subscribe to the newsletter and toss your email address in there. It is free. It is informative. And Carolyn is not going to spam you and is not going to sell your email address. You will be on your way. Every journey has a first step. Take your first step at theboatgalley.com. I'm glad you went out and saved the chickens, okay? Me too. <laughs> All right. We're going to come back. You ready? Ready. Welcome back to Seabird. I'm John Hurley. We're talking today with Megan Agresto. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to get off the lighthouse now and talk about you for a minute. And I'm going to suggest that I think perhaps your background is a little unique to lighthouse keepers. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe there's a lot of of uh, well. I don't want to give it away. So let's 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 back up. Your parents met in college. Correct me if I'm wrong. Boston College, and your dad. I'm skipping around a bit. Had a PhD in political science. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And your mother a master's in library science. Also correct. Did you think you were going to follow on either of those paths? Never. No. No one in my family <laughs> thinks that they're like anyone else in my family. So, in fact, it's always a joke because I look like none of them that, in fact, I was switched at birth. So even though I'm sure I wasn't, almost sure I wasn't, <laughs> there's no pressure for anybody to be anything in my family. And as a result, nobody was anything like anybody else. Okay, so your parents, who are obviously scholarly and somewhat driven to have achieved what they what they achieved, had no particular aspirations for you or expectations for you career-wise, life-wise, they didn't see you as the next iteration of X, Y, or Z or going down a particular path? Really, my parents, I think, were nothing like their parents, right? My paternal grandfather had a bar in Brooklyn, but also worked construction. I think I liked him. Oh, we did too. Uh, and my dad's mom, who was probably the brains of the family, or of the pair, stayed at home and raised her kids. Mm -hmm. uh, her first language was Italian. My dad's first language was Italian only because his grandmother lived at home with them. She never learned to speak English. And interestingly enough, he will make fun of his grandma with love to say she was definitely not the brains of his family. <laughs> uh, but but all, in, all in good jest. He's, he's, of course. He likes to make fun in love as as New Englanders do, and as Southerners sometimes took a little while to get used to Megan, <laughs> even though I've never actually <laughs> lived up north. But still, I think a lot of people think I sort of seem northern with my energy and my interrupting and my, uh, and my humor. Okay, so while under no pressure to follow any particular path in life, little Megan gets out of high school and says, I want to go off to college and study what? So it had already become clear to me, I think, by high school that my brain had an affinity for language and grammar, right? Like I could, well, we, I went to Catholic school, so we were made to diagram sentences, but some people <laughs> were not made 
to diagram the sentences they were made to diagram, but I was. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved to think about gender and tense and voice and uh, all of that. You know, who's the actor? Who's acted upon? What's a prepositional phrase? I loved it all, which made... Okay. Then I, had, I took Latin in... I think the sixth grade at Catholic school, we had a priest who tried to teach us Latin and I loved it. I took Latin in ninth grade. I loved it. But then we moved to New Mexico and my little school in Santa Fe did not teach Latin. So I took Spanish and I was not expecting to love it because I just wanted to take Latin and I loved it. I just loved Spanish. Then there, at some point I ended up applying to UNC, Chapel Hill, sorry, University of North Carolina and took Spanish classes there and studied abroad there, actually. And then people were like, well, shouldn't you major in Spanish? I was like, but I already speak Spanish. Where did you live abroad studying Spanish Um, through UNC? I lived in Sevilla. Oh, oh, actually, and that's interesting. And maybe I forgot to mention this to you earlier, John, but (laughs) prior to me living in Spain, so I went to Carolina for one year. I took some ancient Greek classes because I was like, hey, I like Latin, but maybe I had enough of Latin now. Maybe I should move on. So I took ancient Greek classes. And then I got to the point where I was like, wait, am I seriously going to know ancient Greek, but not modern Greek? So I better drop out of school and move to Greece. (laughs) Wait, wait. So when I was 19. (laughs) Okay, hold on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, you threw me a curveball there. So you're in school. Sorry, John. You're studying Spanish. You already licked Spanish. And you, you lived abroad in Spain. Your Spanish is... No, no, I haven't lived abroad yet. But I have studied Spanish. It's true. Sorry. Oh, this is before living abroad. You've studied Spanish. I have studied Spanish now for 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, and my freshman year in college. Okay. And, and at that point, I was like, I got it. I know what I'm doing. You're like, screw this. I got Spanish. Spanish is good. I'm going to study ancient Greek. Right. So you're studying ancient Greek. Correct. Um, yeah. A language related to, but separate from modern day Greek. Yes. Exactly. Okay. I mean, it just seems weird. Like if some Greek spoke old English, right. it just drove me nuts. If you were like, wait, yeah. Greek person, you learned old English, but not modern English. You're weird. And it bothered me. <laughs> okay. So you were intrigued by the ancient Greek and decided you needed to augment that with a, a modern Greek, Correct. as we call it. So you Correct. said, screw this, I'm going to Greece. Correct. Okay. That, so I was 19, okay. and that was probably the most learning in terms of Megan as a human in this world that I would ever encounter because I didn't speak Greek, I knew no one, and I had no money. So I had already paid for some like college class for essentially people who were married to Greeks who needed to learn Greek. So there was like a college immersion Greek class that I had signed up for abroad. Like I had been here, I signed up for it. I show up in this city of Thessaloniki and I know nothing. I get my passport stolen. I can't leave the hotel because I've been robbed. So I can't check out of a hotel. So I'm accruing nightly fees at the hotel. It is... I don't even know what. See, these are my parents for you. They're like, you want to do this? Good luck. Oh, and I'm quickly becoming more and more depressed about not being able to speak to anyone clearly standing out as a total foreigner and having nothing for anything. But I was insistent. My mom was like, all right, failed plan. Come home. This is ridiculous. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not coming home. I'm going to learn modern Greek. And so I did. I stayed for a year. I ended up leaving the city and moving to a very small island, but not the kind of island you would think of, John, because you couldn't sail to it because it was in the middle of a lake in the mountains. Okay. Mm -hmm. So on the northwest side of Greece, and I was greeted by amazingly friendly people who must have been like, what is happening with this weird American? We better feed her lentil soup and help her stay alive, and they did, and I am still grateful to them to this day. And I met incredible friends and then came back and studied ancient Greek for a couple more years. But then I was like, oh, I better study abroad again while I'm at Carolina and live in Spain. And then after I graduated, I went back to Greece for a year. 
Okay. And now I couldn't really carry on a conversation in Greek if I wanted to, funny enough, because now all I do is speak Spanish. Sure. I mean, when I'm speaking a foreign language. Once you got out of the hotel that you couldn't get out of, where were you? In what sort of housing were you living? Did you rent a room from someone? <sighs> That's so funny you asked that question. So depressing. So depressing. Why is it depressing? So, so because it was the worst situation. For me, it was. So... Again, my parents were living in New Mexico. I don't know if we covered that. But we had moved to New Mexico in high school. Santa Fe. Santa Fe. Sure. Because I went to a school there took Spanish. So the French teacher at my high school was actually Greek. And so she called her brother and said, there's this little ragamuffin. <laughs> Can you help her? And so he knew a guy whose mother, very old woman, had a room in her apartment in the city in a high rise. And can Megan go pay rent there? So I did. But, you know, it was... I have never slept on a bed where the springs, you could feel every spring in the mattress. And again, initially, I could not communicate with the pretty old woman that I was living with. And I think she went between fascination with me and real repulsion. Like, who is this? What? <laughs> Why is this woman in my house? Right. And so I couldn't talk for days, for weeks. I spoke to no one. My poor friends would get like 12-page letters on like Aeropostale blue I loved those. letters. You remember those? And you fold them. You would write it and fold it into itself and lick the corners and yeah, yeah. the edge. Oh. Lick it and send it. It had a little red, white, and blue on it. Yeah. Oh, those. I would see that come when I lived in Switzerland and the, the postal delivery would show up. Yeah. And my poor friends would get letters upon letters and they were off living their lives happily. And I was <laughs> without context in Greece. It's a beautiful thing. And that was a good lesson. That's the whole lesson that I learned in Greece. Well, it was a lesson that I learned about who is Megan Agresto and what makes her tick, right? You throw someone into a, a context in which she has no reason to be. You try, you do eventually figure out what makes you happy, who makes you happy, what actions do you take to feel most like yourself? There is, I, I don't necessarily think that everything in life uh, equates to sailing, but I, I'm <laughs> going to say something real quick. One of the things that drew me to sailing before I sailed and that resonates so deeply with me as I continue to have the boat that I mostly live aboard and sail um, is that it distills everything in life down to the essentials. If you're on the boat, you care about the weather around you, your food situation, your you know general uh, situational safety, your water. And, and beyond that, there's not a lot left to worry about. And I know that, that when you are tossed into a situation like you found yourself in in Greece, while not exactly the same, all the fluff is, is gone and your life is distilled down to housing, food, the necessities, and, and you're left staring at nothing but, but, but you and your own ideas that are in your head about where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do. But the one difference between my life in Greece and sailing is that I had no purpose and it came back to me. I had my own purpose, right? Mm -hmm. But it was a selfish one. Megan wants something, right? She wants to acquire information. Okay. But there was no purpose in my next step. If I had never gotten out of bed that whole year, no one would have known, <laughs> right? And that's okay. If I had not called anyone, if I had died, right? And those are the thoughts that really spin in your head when you're purpose. I don't think that way in my normal life because I have things to do. When you're sailing, you have to keep afloat. You have to keep water source. You have to know where you're going. And that gives you purpose. When you move to the middle of a country where you know nothing, and that's actually the lesson I left with, is that Megan's not a person who's meant to go on vacation and skiing and sit on a beach all the time. She is meant to keep things going and find work and work. Right. That's where, you know, whether it's if you put me on a sailboat, I think I would be happy. I'd be like, got things to do. Got to keep alive. Yeah. <laughs> so you come back from this experience, good, bad and otherwise it impacted you. It clearly impacted how you viewed yourself and your life and the rest of your life. Came back, went back to school, studied more ancient Greece, and then changed your mind? No, I haven't changed my mind yet. Okay. That's when I moved back to Greece with a Fulbright scholarship. Okay. And am determined to do what actually 
I love to do it. At the end of the year, I didn't realize I still loved this because I was like, I've got to change careers. But I did. I went to Greece and was like, I'm going to research using ancient Greek texts. It turns out that to this day, I still adore looking for primary text material. But contextually, because I had learned this when I was 19, I want to be doing what I want to be doing around people who I want to be stimulated by. And it turns out that I'm not a great classicist in that sense. I felt, at least in that year, to be more hyperactive, more chatty, more wanting to engage with the people around me than I did gosh, maybe I've changed a lot now that I think about it. Because now all I want is for people to leave me alone so I can write and research. But back then I wanted to talk to people about what I was doing. And I don't know, it didn't feel like the right fit to me professionally. Although now that I'm telling you this, gosh, maybe I should go back and be a classicist again. Do you live in a town, Corolla, North Carolina, that maybe I'm not exactly right, has, let's say, maybe around 500 year-round residents and in the summer at least it used to be something in the neighborhood of 55 50,000 people that are there at a time during the week and new ones almost every week yeah i actually love all human beings for two minutes all of them (laughs) right now do i want them in my house for five days no almost none of them do i want for that long maybe even that one night but in Kerala, you get a nice mixture of, I just got to chat with people and they were on vacation and they were lovely. Uh, also, because I don't provide housing. I think if you talk to people who work for hotels, they'll say actually they're not that lovely. <laughs> Oftentimes, but my experience, not always. And it could be because people love to go to a lighthouse or because I love anyone. For two minutes, it's a good match, right? I get to meet people here. I love to talk to them. So it means I love my job. And it means I like those humans. And then when they're gone, I don't miss them. Right. And then when they come back, I'm happy to see them. At some point, you're you're back in Greece. You're studying ancient Greek texts. You realize it, maybe it's the wrong thing. And and you're studying, again, correct me if I'm wrong, the, 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 the role, I can't say it without smiling, <laughs> R-O-L-E of bread in Greek society through ancient texts. Yes, the... Uh, really was trying to look for leavening, if you will, okay. throughout history, uh, or throughout at least ancient history, through oral, through, through the oral tradition, and whether I could prove or disprove or say definitively, yes, in the Homeric text, this is definitely unleavened bread. Don't ask me. Like, how did I even get <laughs> on that, and why? I don't even remember why I was like, that's what I need to do next with my life. But maybe because in some ways, and my boyfriend at the time's mom was like, is this where we've gotten as humans to the most minutia of all curiosities? So uh, that was maybe uh, what eventually brought me down is I almost wasn't sure that I cared. Mm-hmm. Right at the end of the day, could I have proven something that nobody was asking anyway? I don't know. I feel bad because I don't remember why at the time it seemed important. Did you find references to leavening? I think I did. And I don't remember, John. I don't remember. <laughs> There's no great treatise out there that you wrote? No, I tried to. I sent it to a newspaper. The Rise and Fall of Ancient Greek Bread. I should have. <laughs> I should have, John. Where were you? would have been the perfect title. I don't, all I remember is that the newspaper decided they weren't interested or the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I know it's on a floppy disk somewhere. And that's all we got. We have nothing in the world that will read a floppy disk. (laughs) So let's skip forward. You come back. We're off of bread. We're off of Greece. And you're back in school. And a master's from UNC in social work. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I had been working at what we, at that time, called the Family Violence Prevention Center. Was your work in the field personal in any way? Not necessarily from your own family, I mean, but... Oh, absolutely. Quite honestly, just the contrary, right? Because I came from such a kind and supportive family. Mm -hmm. 
you know, of whom much is given, much is expected. Mm-hmm. That was more of that mentality for me, that I had the grounding to be helpful. We've, we've built a, a, a beautiful mosaic up to now, and I've got you graduating school with a master's degree in social work. How do you end up at the lighthouse? If you want to graduate with a degree in social work, you have to declare yourself a macro, essentially a nonprofit management studies person, a direct services person, where you will be giving therapy or working in the schools or running a social services division. But I was also poor and also I was pregnant. And it was going to be very, if I wanted to get the direct services degree, I had to leave my job and go intern somewhere else for free. I couldn't lose that job. And so I made the decision to keep my job, but I had to declare myself a person who was going to do nonprofit management work instead. And so when the job at the lighthouse came open and it's a long story that I knew someone who had this job before me, who was also pregnant almost simultaneously to me, but she was living in Kerala and she had never thought to have a baby before. And she thought, I am going to leave this job and move to a town where I have friends with babies who can help. At which point I thought, okay, I have this pager attached to my hip at all times. I have this baby who will not eat, who will not breastfeed, who maybe lacks a nutritive suck. I cannot keep showing up at, to help people fill out paperwork in the middle of the night when I'm already not sleeping. The number one rule of helping other people is you've got to be stable enough to be helpful. The oxygen mask rule from the airport. The oxygen mask rule. And I was mm-hmm. breaking the oxygen mask rule. So I said, oh wait, you run a nonprofit and I could certainly do work out there. And Luis has this capacity to join me in this job. So let's get out of Chapel Hill and stop. Well, not to say stop being so poor, but let's let's find ourselves a little more grounded uh, and not carry a pager all the time, which is funny because of course, when the lighthouse is open, it's a hundred, God, what is it? 230 days in a row now that I'm on call. As long as we're open, I'm nearby. I know what the weather is. I I know who's at work, when they were supposed to be there, whether something has gone wrong, but it's still not getting paged in the middle of the night to go help someone in Spanish you know, keep them alive. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> no, but see, John, it is a combination of nonprofit and history that I was like, oh, wait, that's a good next role for me that combines both of these lives that I loved. The perfect balance of the two very disparate paths that you took when you were younger. Right. And it would have involved more domestic violence volunteering. But then I ended up having another baby. And then it occurred to me that I live in a town with no school. And I've got to live here on site if I want this job. And I better do something to figure out a way to get these kids an education. So then that turned into another nonprofit. That is exactly where we're going next. You're listening to Seabird and we'll be right back. A great way to help support Seabird is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to the show and to share an episode with a friend. Every share, every positive comment really helps. Welcome back to Seabird. I'm John Herlig. We're talking today with Megan Agresto, lighthouse keeper, the Currituck Beach Lighthouse in Kerala, North Carolina. How long had you been there when you first was slated to start going to school? And where was he uh, uh, scheduled to go to school by virtue of how the county works? Kerala is separated geographically from the rest of its county. So there were, in fact, a bunch of single schoolhouses up and down the beach. But slowly over the decades, that changed. And they tried to, like all of America, get lots of kids from lots of places into one big building rather than support facility costs for lots of small buildings. So by the 1950s or the late 1950s, Kerala lost its school. 
Eventually, Kuratuk just started sending the bus and it would pick you up at 5.30 in the morning and make you sit on it until, well, and then pick everybody else up, right? You got picked up first, of course. And then it would swing down through the other county and then pick everybody else up. So kids were on a bus for five hours a day. And that's where I was like, I love my job, but I'm not putting my five-year-old on a bus for five hours a day. But I also can't drive there and back and then drive there and back because then I'll be out five hours a day. So did he, your oldest never actually did the the hideous busing to the mainland thing? Right. So I can, I don't know if it was me who convinced, but I was able to at least send my child to the school down south and pay, but I had to pay for it, right? Where you have to pay to send your kid for, to public school is always kind of a bummer. While you're paying taxes. But again, I should have just shut up and paid for it (laughs) because the amount of work it takes (laughs) to start and run a school. So how many school years did your oldest attend public school the next county over, regardless how you managed to pull it off? Uh, He went there three years. Three years. Well, because he also, we went to preschool down. We drove a lot, right? But you had this empty not used forever, little house on the prairie, one room, schoolhouse, on the lighthouse compound. Well, first we had to start a board and then apply for a school and then get turned down and then try to figure out how we wanted to even start a school. Do we sue mm-hmm. under the Free and Appropriate Public Education Act? Do we get a church to agree that it'll be a church school? Do we start a private school and make people pay? Right. None of those seemed right for us. So we ended up going Mm -hmm. with the charter system, which is essentially a state chartered school. Mm -hmm. And then they turned us down. I mean, primarily because when we opened, we only had a thousand dollars and 15 kids. It it wasn't a lack of kids. It was a lack of funding. Oh, 15 kids is a lack of kids. You can't open a charter school without 65 kids because you can't balance a budget. Right. You, okay. If you want to pay your building and pay your administrator and, pay, you know, but we begged and we told them that we could make it happen and please to believe us. And they were right to believe us because we did make it happen. So how long how, how long did you fight after you failed before you succeeded? Just one year. So we failed our first year. We were successful our second year. And I think we had raised maybe two thousand more dollars. That time we had actually sent out a letter that said, if they charter us, will you give us lots of money, friends and family? (laughs) And so people committed to donations that we would not have accepted unless we were successful. So that was a good way to do it. Is it a tip? Forgive me. I don't know anything about it. Charter schools didn't exist when I was a kid, and I don't know if they existed when my kids were in school, um, is it typical for a charter school to privately raise funds from the kids who are going there? Well, so that wasn't, sorry, it wasn't from the families that were going there. We didn't even have kids enrolled at that point, right? So mm-hmm. we had told the people in Raleigh, hey, we, the people on our board, have sent out a fundraising letter to all our friends and family and ask them for 50 to $200. And lots of them have committed. So be less worried. We can pay our first month of payroll and rent. uh, If you'll just go ahead and give us the thumbs up, at which point we would get public funds, right? Because it's a a charter school is a public school, Right. right? So then you get money follows each child. So then the state gives you money and the county of where they're from will also give you their funds. And so you managed to get your uh, one-room schoolhouse started in what year? 2012. Uh, and you started with how many kids? Well, we started with 16, but soon one, like six weeks later, one moved back to Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> no complaints about the school, but his mom got a new job. So we went down to 15 and they were worried. They Even just losing one kid, I think, provoked a phone call from the head of the Office of Charter Schools, like, how are you going to do this? But we've done it. I mean, mostly because I sit in my office and work for free and have for 10 years. Um, So that helps you save money when you're not paying an administrator. What is it that you are doing for free from your office for the school? And don't say everything, even if it is. Okay, so I'm now- Just make it work? Are you the glue? Is that that is that is exactly what I am, right? So today I signed checks and brought them over to the schoolhouse and watched a video about to, how to report a misadministration of state testing. 
uh, and organized, I can't remember how many kids, we have 20 different names for the lottery we have coming up, even though we only have six spots open for next year, and talked to three parents about the fact, the grave likelihood that their kids will not be accepted, given how many spots we have and how many kids we have on our waiting list. So we have the inverse of the problem you had in the beginning. Exactly. You know, have too many kids who want to come in and just simply not enough. Yeah, and in COVID, we've been open since October and a lot of people wanted to move to the beach anyway because they wanted fresh air and not to live in a city. Mm -hmm. And I think last year at some point, we had 28 kids on our waiting list. On the waiting list, not in the school, on the waiting list. On the waiting list, <laughs> on the waiting list. So yeah, that's, that's how it's gone. It's a tricky thing, of course. I mean, we don't even need to get into the idea of, of year-round residents in a vacation town and how necessary they are, but also how reviled they are and how people, municipalities don't necessarily want to provide services because they want occupancy tax. It can get very complicated trying to understand the, the whys and the hows of vacation towns. Also, it's impossible to find housing because you will make so much more money renting your house on a weekly basis than to a teacher or to a family with kids, right? Than a year-round lease. But you also need all of those people to support your tourism industry. But of course, if it becomes such a happy place with such a great school, then every house is going to get filled with year-round residents and there goes your occupancy tax. And it's a, it is a tricky balance that I think everybody, or at least the commissioners, walk when they think, oh, we should have sidewalks and schools. No, you can't make it too palatable for more than a week because uh, you don't really want all your houses filled with residents because then you have to have a, right. you know, a retirement center and a school and uh, all sorts of things that you don't necessarily want to provide. But when you start a school, you change that. As long as you don't have a school, people keep moving away. What's the best thing about being a lighthouse keeper? I get to talk, I get to not talk. I get to manage, but I also get to do whatever I want because it all has to get done. You know, we're a very small organization here, right? If it's an event, it's because I planned it. It's, if it's an event, it's because I ran it. There's no room for two people to sit in my office and get work done. <laughs> so it's great. My kids get to run around, right? One woman laughed at me. She was a re more recent transplant here, and I think I said my kids were free range. And I think she was really nervous for me, <laughs> right? And I didn't mean that as like- For you or for them? <laughs> I don't know because they weren't going to go far and the coyote's not going to eat them. And there's only one road out of town. And I didn't ever think that someone would kidnap them and drive them down our one road. I was raised in the Midwest United States in the 1960s. I was free range. I lived. Yeah, yeah. right. And I think a lot of people love that, you know. A lot of people feel like you can't do that today. I probably would have given, because again, my parents let me go, right? They let, not to say they let me lose, but they did. They let us, both me and my sister, do whatever it is we were mm -hmm. doing. Um, and I feel the same for my kids. Like, hey, I mean, I also am leaving here to sit with them for hours and be like, did you get your work done? And let me see it and prove it to me. I'm still going to make them do their schoolwork. It's not that they can do anything because not on my watch. But uh, but in terms of where were they at what time of day, I didn't know because it was fine. It wasn't like I was in Chapel Hill living over my parking lot. That was my old life. And in a, in a town of 500 people, if your boys are out doing something they shouldn't be doing, it's not that hard to find out anyway. Oh, that is so true. But uh, we won't go there. Um, what is the one piece of advice you would give to someone if they were looking at you and, and wanting you to tell them how to live a life that would bring them happiness? Oh, that's so funny because I'm always like allegedly claiming my life motto only it so often changes like recently it has been moderate your expectations but other people will attribute the phrase be nice to your future self to me uh i'm a big believer in that which is essentially don't put it off i'm a to-do list person get it off get it done for the niceness to the future megan who will appreciate me having done that <laughs> but i'm also like i was raised 
because I went to a high school for two years that had a Latin motto that was in, it depends how you want to pronounce it, but I'll translate it for you, and probably apocryphally attributed to Hannibal bringing the elephants over the Alps, but find a way, or actually it was the future, it was the future. I will find a way or I will make one. And that has certainly gotten me far in life too. I love it. That's perfect. Megan Agresto, thank you so much for joining us on Seabird and we hope to talk to you again. It was my pleasure, John. It was so good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Seabird is made by Boat Radio. It is written and produced by John Herlig and Mike McDowell. Thank you to D Imperfection for our theme song, Welcome to Neverland. And thank you also to Megan Agresto for her perfect voiceover work. We are very grateful. For everyone here at Seabird, I am Christopher Pruitt saying, thanks for listening. Hi, John again. Don't hit stop yet because you know I have a couple of more things to share with you. First, be sure to join us next week when Mike McDowell is joined by Chris and Melody DeCroce. Have you ever just felt stuck in life? Have you ever hit a professional wall? Or did you ever wake up and just look around your house and think to yourself, why do I own all this shit? Chris and Melody DeCroce understand. They have done it. Theirs is a dizzying story of highs and lows and the absolute magic of saying, fuck it, and reinventing yourself. I really hope you join us. Our website is BoatRadio.co, BoatRadio.co. And if you go to that website, you can see some of the projects we have in the pipe. You can see the faces of the upcoming guests on Seabird. You can send us a voicemail or send us an email. We love keeping in touch. We love sharing stories with our listeners. And of course, a special thank you to our sponsor, TheBoatGalley.com. If you're on the outside of the boating world and you're looking in, and you want to make that leap, start your journey at theboatgalley.com. It's too much pressure for you 
You've got no time to be true to yourself, yeah. 